to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, second book in the New Testament. Mark 14. We have been for the past few weeks, in fact, this kind of wraps up our Suppers with Jesus series. We've been talking about different times that Jesus had meals with uh, different people. And I think we've learned that if you have a meal with Jesus, you're not going to leave the same. You're going to be changed. And it's a decision-demanding experience when a person had a meal with Jesus. Now, today we're looking at the last supper in Jesus' life. Consider along with me the contrast of our Savior Jesus Christ and the life of other religious leaders in the world. Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, and other founders of major religions all died at an old age. They were lauded. They triumphed over their opponents. While Jesus Christ died young, alone, stripped, mocked, in agony, crying out to God who had forsaken him. And yet, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ has transformed millions of lives, and it changed the world forever. Now, why is that? What's the big difference? Well, the one obvious major difference is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? That makes a big difference to any other religious leader in the world. Uh, the No other name that I just mentioned a minute ago raised from the dead. They all, you can visit their graves even today. They could not be raised from the dead. They were not God the way Jesus was. But in the supper that we look at tonight or this morning, uh, Jesus shows us the significance of his death. Of course, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Uh, but today, uh, we'll focus mostly on his death. We call it the Last Supper. Uh, we refer it to it as sometimes as the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we observe it at church, we call it communion. And that's what I want to look at this uh, passage in Mark 14 today. I want to break down what Jesus said about his death and how it changes everything. Read along with me, if you would, starting at verse number 22 of Mark 14. The Bible says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will be go before the, you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will, I not, will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. I pray, Father, that you would help us today as we look at this Last Supper, not only the Last Supper in Scripture that Jesus would have on earth, but the last one we're looking at. And, and as we wrap this series up, I pray, Lord, that you would show us something special, challenge our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. We see the importance of his death. Now, the Bible starts this text out while they were eating. 
Uh, what they're doing here is they're eating the Passover. That's the scene that we entered as we began reading the text. Remember that the Israelites were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for 400 years, all the way back as the book of Genesis ended and Exodus started. Uh, they were in misery. They were in bondage. Uh, they, and then God delivered them through a series of, of plagues. You probably know the story. You remember it in Sunday school, the ten plagues that came and freed, uh, freed Israelites from Egypt and led them to freedom. Well, the Passover was the meal that commemorated this important moment in the history of Israel. The Passover meal was a process. There were four uh, cups of wine in the Passover meal. And I'll, let me just break in here very quickly. I do not believe that Jesus at any point in his life drank fermented wine. The Bible is extremely clear all throughout. And of course, the Bible, the word wine in your Bible can refer to different drinks, including simply grape juice. New wine is grape juice that has not yet fermented, if you look at Matthew chapter 9. And in fact, wine and strong drink in the Bible are often differentiated. Uh, in fact, it differentiates it in Proverbs 23, 31. Look not Thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, or the fermentation process. There is a time to drink wine, and it's not when it is fermented. So I believe the Bible is crystal clear all throughout Scripture that the Christian should not imbibe in alcohol. So that's not what we're preaching about today, but sometimes I give free things out and don't even charge extra, okay? Uh, but here we get back to the Passover. Uh, there were four moments in which the host gets up and says various things. Uh, this is actually the uh, third cup of wine or juice. At the fourth cup, there is the singing of the halal, and that's essentially reciting Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, and they did that here. Verse 26 says that when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, verse 22 begins the third part of the Passover. At the third part of the Passover, the host would get up and he would bless the elements he would remind them the symbolism of what these elements meant. The Passover is very specific in what they would eat and how they would uh, go through it. And he would use the words that were found in Deuteronomy chapter 26. The Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And they would uh, talk about what God did in their past. That's a good thing for us to do, by the way. It's a good thing for us to look back <coughs> and remind ourselves of the good things God has done for us. Builds our faith looking forward. The host would then explain the meaning of the great deliverance through the elements of the food in the Passover. Imagine the astonishment uh, this evening when the disciples, uh, for the disciples, when Jesus began to talk about something different. <clears throat> he shows them the bread, and then he says, this is my body. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Uh, in other words, this bread, uh, this is the bread of my suffering. Like Moses led an exodus out of Egypt, I am going to lead the ultimate exodus. Uh, I will bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. He's saying as this meal was observed the night before God redeemed Israel from an enslaved, uh, from the people that enslaved them, from Pharaoh, 
Tonight we eat it the night before God will redeem the whole world and he'll do it through me. This is not just salvation from social and economic bondage through Moses. This is salvation from death and evil itself through Jesus. He is the ultimate Moses, and he will lead the ultimate Exodus. This is the final salvation. In fact, all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, all the other sacrifices, all the other deliverances, everything was pointing to this moment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the event toward which all the history of the world pointed to. And that is the importance of his death. Look at the meaning of his death. What did it actually accomplish? Now, it's interesting that to explain what Jesus is doing here, he chooses this time of the Passover. He didn't just call a meeting. He didn't just randomly tell his disciples to meet here and we're going to talk about this. He chose the Passover. And if we really want to understand the meaning of Jesus' death, what it means for us, then we can do no better than to look at the Passover. Uh, let's look at it. Israel was in bondage. We know the history. Pharaoh was tyrannizing them, had enslaved them for roughly about 400 years. And by the way, God hates evil and he hates injustice. And so he tells Moses, I'm going to bring justice down on Pharaoh. I'm going to bring justice down on Egypt. But if you read Exodus 11, 12, and 13, you see something quite amazing. Because God tells Moses that uh, justice is going to come down to humanity, and when it does, it's not only coming down on the Egyptians, because God's justice is justice to every man. Every man is subject to it. Now, the reason I say this, because we sometimes get the mistaken idea that the world is split up into two groups, the good guys and the bad guys. So you have two groups of people. You have the good guys, which is, of course, us, <laughs> right? And then you have the bad guys, which is those people out there or a certain group of people that we attach bad morality to. And so you've got the good guys and bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that every single person is a bad person. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It goes on to say, there is none righteous. There's nobody that's good. We're all bad in the sight of God. So we all participate in what makes the world a terrible, miserable, and broken place. And so when God's judgment comes down on this night, He says it's not only going to come down on the Egyptians, it's going to come down on everyone. It doesn't matter what race you belong to. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what type of life you've led or whether you've tried to be good or not. Everybody is subject to justice, then and now. It's incredibly equal. And the only way Moses' people will survive, if you remember the story, is to kill a lamb, to eat that lamb, and then to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. When justice comes, the death angel would come through that night, then they would, only if they took shelter under the blood of the lamb, is there any hope for their survival. In other words, their pedigree, their life, their morality, their racial identity, none of this was their hope. Uh, the only thing, the only way they would be safe is if they had faith in a substitute. Specifically, the judgment that night, we know, was the death of the firstborn. Remember, that was the last and final judgment. God said that the, He would come through, and everyone, every house who did not have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house 
would die. That always bothered me because I'm a firstborn. Amen? How many of you are a firstborn in here? That wouldn't have bothered me so much if I had an older brother, but it really bothered me because, hey, 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 you're talking about me there. That's a little offensive. But there was no deliverance from this on your own morality, on your own merit. You had to depend in a substitute. So it was one or the other. Either a home would have a dead son or a dead lamb. One of the two. That was the only options. Uh, because justice was coming. If, if they found you, uh, uh, or if, if, if death avoided you, it was because you took shelter under a substitute under the blood of the lamb. If you did that, then the death passed over you. The, the angel, the Bible says the angel would pass over that house, hence the word Passover. That's where the word comes from. The angel of death passed over this house, and that's what they were celebrating. You were not saved on the basis of your merit. You were saved by your faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. You can read all about this in Exodus chapter 12. Exciting story. Now, it's miraculous. It's dramatic. But it leaves you with an unanswered question. If you're a thinking person, why does the sacrifice of a lamb give you an exemption from justice? Think about this. So you steal... You lie, you cheat, you beat your spouse or whatever myriad of sins you've got racked up in your life. And the way that you get redemption for that sin is to kill that sweet little lamb you have in the back lot. How's that going to solve your sin problem? Why would the death of a little, woolly, cute, sweet lamb exempt you from justice? Well, the common sense answer and, by the way, the answer from Isaiah, the answer from John the Baptist, and the answer from Jesus is that it won't. It never did. The death of these lambs in the Old Testament was not what, what exempted a person from judgment, so what did? When Jesus Christ got up here this evening that we just read at this supper to bless the food that night, this was the weirdest Passover in history. Notice the food that he blessed. There was the bread, all the Passover uh, every Passover meal had bread. There was the cup. Every Passover meal had a cup. But not one of the Gospels, when it talks about this night, ever mentions a lamb being there. But there was always a lamb at the Passover meal. But it doesn't say there was a lamb here on this evening. And, of course, we know why. There was no lamb at the uh, on the table because there was a lamb at the table, the Lamb of God. I think of what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus walk toward him on the day of his baptism. He said, Behold, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. Now, why would he call Jesus a Lamb? Well, first of all, he wasn't the first who did it. Isaiah did so in Isaiah 53, 7, when he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. A sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah understood that an animal cannot substitute for your sin. It takes a person to do that. And all those lambs in the Old Testament that they would sacrifice on behalf of their sins pictured the Lamb of God that one day would hang on a cross and die for us. He is the one that Isaiah spoke about. And then Jesus says in verse 24, This is my blood shed for many. He's identifying as that Lamb. He is 
the Lamb of God that all the other lambs pointed to. This is the meaning of Jesus' death. It's a substitutionary death. Without that sacrificial love and substitutionary death, salvation would be absolutely impossible. Salvation cannot be earned on the basis of the works that we do. It cannot be earned by the life that you lead. That's why the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us come short on our own. Because salvation, as we've said many times, is not a behavioral problem. It's, we, we do not, we do not, uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's a condition. It's not a behavioral problem. Therefore, it cannot be solved by changing your behavior. Any more that cancer could be solved by changing your behavior. It's a condition, and it requires a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, modern people have a hard time understanding this. Maybe you're in this boat too. Why do we need a sacrifice? Why can't God just love us? Why does He need to make His son die? Why does he need all that bloodshed? In fact, modern thought turns God into a bloodthirsty despot. You've read probably things like that, and I have too. Yet, if we're honest, all real life-changing love on some level is a substitutionary sacrifice. You have never loved a broken person, a hurting person, or a wounded person without some personal sacrifice on your part. You ever know somebody, and you think, as soon as you see them, oh, I don't want to talk to them. Talking to them is so draining. You ever had somebody like that? No? Then it's you that other people say that about, okay? One of the two. We all know someone like that. If you don't, it's probably you. But uh, it, it's draining, to be a friend, to love someone who is emotionally wounded and broken. If you try to love on somebody whose life has been made a mess and they're hurting and they're wounded, if you try to love someone like, it's going to cost you something, friend. Your love can't bring them up without you going down a little bit. You can't do it without a transfer, if you will. Because somehow their troubles and their, their problems are going to transfer to you. Let me give you an illustration. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I, before the Good Samaritan showed up, there's this guy, he's beat up on the side of the road, and he's laying there, he's suffering, he's hurting. <clears throat> and the Bible says that a priest walked by and saw him, and a Levite walked by and saw him. Those are religious men. They walked by and saw him. Now I ask you the question, did they have pity? I'm sure they did, if they're human. Oh, that's too bad. Guy got beat up. That's too bad. What a society we live in. We're voting for the wrong people. And then he kept on walking. He didn't do anything about it. And the second guy comes along, the same thing. He sees it. It's the television and the video games of this day. That's why this, the young people are ruining this country. And then he keeps on walking. He doesn't do anything about it. The good Samaritan comes along, and he takes on his problem on himself. That's what compassion is. Compassion is walking in the problem of another person. It'll cost you something. It's not just, you don't just love someone who's that broken and it not do anything for you. It's going to cost us something. Uh, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's why the Bible tells us in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a, brother, if a man be overtaken in a fault, in other words, a guy has fallen morally uh, or he's weak spiritually, he has messed up in his life, he says, Ye which are spiritual, 
restore such an one. That's a good thing. We need to do that. We don't, we don't kick somebody when they're down. We don't get mad at somebody when they mess up. We help them. We pick them up. But it's important. It tells us who does that. Ye which are spiritual. Why? Because it takes a reservoir of peace in you for you to pass peace on to someone else. It takes spirituality in you to bring another person up spiritually. Emotionally wounded people fill up emotionally if someone loves them. Uh, and the only way to love them is to be emotionally drained to some level. They're not going to fill up unless you empty out. Now, on the cross, you don't have a bloodthirsty God. You have a God who demands justice. You have a God who realizes that the only way He can fulfill that justice is to separate us from Him for all of eternity because of our sin or to send a substitutionary sacrifice. Someone who is perfect, like the lambs in the Old Testament, spotless, without spot or blemish. Do you know anybody like that? Without spot or blemish? Some of us think we are like that, but we're not. Nobody is. But there was one who was, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He gave Himself for us. And the only way you're going to love a guilty person, the only way you're going to love a broken person, the only way you can really love them to the point of changing them is that you have to do so substitutionarily. He took our penalty on Himself. He got what we deserve. Our sin fell on Him. Our guilt fell on Him. Our brokenness fell on Him. He took it on Himself so we could be forgiven. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What a blessing. Now, let me finish uh, on our last point here, how His death can be a transforming power in your life. Jesus Christ reveals the meaning of His death here at this supper. And He instructs us always to remember this evening here through a meal of sorts we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Jesus doesn't just say, this is my body. He tells us in verse 22, take, eat. He doesn't just say, I'm dying for you. He says, you have to take what I'm doing for you. You have to receive it. You have to take it in. You have to appropriate it. How do we do this? First of all, we have to understand and recognize our dependency. We've got to see our dependency, full dependency on Him. In order to receive the benefits of Christ's death, you've got to realize something, friend. Read with me here in verse 24 and 25. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When somebody in the Bible says, I'm not going to drink or eat until such and such, in old times that was considered an unconditional oath. For example, in Acts chapter 23, there was a group of people that were so angry at the Apostle Paul, they said, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill that guy. Uh, I think they broke that eventually because he didn't die. <laughs> uh, they didn't, weren't able to kill him. But that's the oath that they made. In other words, when you make an oath like that, what you're saying is, if it kills me, I will do such and such. In other words, I'm going to do it unconditionally. These kind of oaths were often taken in ancient times, even in the Bible. Now, in our day with contracts and notary publics and 
It seems kind of gory to us to do what they did back then, but it was very vivid. In fact, I'll tell you how it worked in the Old Testament. If you were going to take an oath, what you would do is you'd take an animal and you'd either quarter that animal out or, or cut it in two. You would lay that animal on two sides of a path and then you would walk through the path to make an oath <coughs> that basically what you're saying is, may I end up like this animal? May I be cut in two if I do not fulfill my vow? May I be destroyed? May I be killed? That was the picture of what they were doing. It was a very vivid picture. And you were identifying with that animal. In fact, we find a fascinating story in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is talking to God and he asks God, Lord, how do I really know that you're going to bless me? You've been saying you're going to bless me. You've promised me a son that I haven't seen yet. How do I know you're going to bless me? And so God said, Abraham, kill an animal and set the pieces out. And Abraham knew what was coming because this was a cultural thing to make a vow. And so he knew an oath was going to be made. So he cuts, he uh, kills the animal, he cuts it in pieces, and he lays the pieces out. And suddenly, after he does that, a smoking torch appears in midair. It is God in a pillar of fire. Uh, this is the representation of his uh, presence. Then to Abraham's absolute shock, he goes through in between the animals. He is the one that made the vow. Now, again, we think, okay, big deal. This was a big deal. And to understand Abraham's shock, we need to understand the implications. Because whenever you see an oath like that made in the Bible, it's always an oath from the servant to the Lord. It is always an oath by an inferior to a superior. Superiors never made these oaths to inferiors. But when we get to Genesis 15, God's the one taking the oath. God's saying, I will bless you if it kills me. Uh, it's like God is saying, I'll bless you if I have to die by doing it. Now we get to the Last Supper, and Jesus basically gives this type of oath. He says, I'm going to make a covenant between you and God, and the basis of my relationship is my blood. This is the blood of my covenant. That's what verse 25 is all about. When he says, I'll drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you grasp what he's saying there? He's not saying, I'll do this if I have to die. There's no if here. He is, I am going to die. I am going to give my life as a sacrifice for you. Now something interesting happens. Immediately after he makes this blood oath, Jesus drops another bombshell. Verse 27. Uh, he says, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. He says, you're all going to fail me. Now, Peter hears this. Jesus has just made this oath. Now, Peter hears this, and Peter says, he, now he makes an oath. He says, verse 31, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Of course, we know Peter failed in his oath. Jesus did not fail in his Notice carefully, verse 27, he says, you will all fail me. And then in verse 28, after I'm risen, I'll see you in Galilee. Clearly, he's rejecting the premise of Peter's oath. You see, their salvation, oh, don't miss this, friend. Their salvation does not depend on their commitment to Christ. That failed. Their salvation is dependent on his commitment to them. What he did for them, not what they'll do for him. 
oh, this is the most, and, and it's so funny that we see Peter after Jesus makes that wonderful uh, commitment to them. I, I'm not going to eat anymore until I get to heaven. I'm doing this for you. I'm giving my life to you. Peter responds to that wonderful promise with an oath of his own. Oh, yeah? I'll see your oath, and I'll raise it. And that's the most natural human thing for us to do. We think we're going we're gonna to do something ourselves. We're going to make it happen on our own. If I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I'm really committed, then God will bless me. Then somehow things start going wrong in our life. And what do we think? Well, I guess I'm not really committed enough. This supper that we see here is about our resting in His promises. His commitment to us. Salvation is all Him. Nothing me. Salvation is, uh, we find also that living victorious Christian lives is all Him. Nothing me. If our spiritual success depended on us, we'd be in a hot mess, wouldn't we? If our spiritual success depended on my abilities, oh, I'd be in trouble. The story is told of a shipwrecked sailor who clung to a rock after he had fallen off his ship and the storm was blowing and he, he clung on to this rock. He was in great danger until the tide went down. And later a friend asked him, didn't you shake with fear as you were hanging on to that rock? And he says, yes, I did shake with fear, but the rock did not. Jesus Christ is our rock. We may shake, but He remains firm. Cling to Him. Imagine you're on a cliff and you're about to fall off this cliff and sticking out of the edge of the cliff is a branch. You have just enough time to grab that branch. Now I have a question. How much faith do you have to have in that branch for it to save you? Oh, preacher, before I grab onto it, I've got to be absolutely sure that it'll hold me. No, all you do is grab onto it. Can I tell you today, friend, that it, does not, it is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. It's all about the branch, not about how you feel about it. And Jesus is that branch. Grab onto Him, and He will save you. Oh, we are so susceptible to the ups and downs of our Christian life because of failures, because of mess-ups. When trouble and discouragement comes, we go to the wrong things in our life. We feel punished for our failures instead of recognizing God's purpose for our future. And this, story, uh, this supper here teaches us that our relationship with God depends not on our past, not on our failures, but on Christ's past and on His work. And uh, we understand it is not my record that matters. It is Christ's record that matters. The Lord's Supper shows you that the real uh, food that you need is His unconditional commitment to you. His dying commitment to you is now His living commitment to you. Isn't that exciting? Because He rose again. Then and only then can you have victory. So we have to recognize our dependence on Him. Second thing is we need to do this in community. Did you notice what happens here? All this happens at a Passover. And it's interesting because a Passover meal is for a family. Each family did this on their own. So why does Jesus pull the disciples out of their family and say, let's have a Passover meal? And there's a lesson here too, I believe. You know, when you're raised with brothers and sisters, 
Most of us have siblings. I have three brothers and one sister too many. And as we're raised with brothers and sisters, uh, we're going to have our differences. Amen? A lot of us have harsh differences growing up. And especially if you're the oldest and you're trying to raise them right and they resist you, uh, you're going to have differences, but they're still your brothers and sisters. You're raised together. There's a bond there. But Jesus shows that this, is, this idea here is so life-transforming that, that all who believe in me is your brother and sister. Do you remember what he says in Luke 8? One day Jesus is preaching and somebody comes up, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. You know what Jesus says? He responds, My mother and my brethren are those which hear the word of God and do it. There's a basis for unity for us in this room today as if we'd have been raised together. Doesn't matter your race. Doesn't matter your background. This bond is stronger than anything else. That is the beauty of the local church. It is an awesome God-ordained institution. Here we can get encouragement when going through hard times. Here we can find like-minded believers that will help us grow. Here we can hear the Word of God opened and expounded in a way that can be applied to our daily life. Going to church is awesome, amen? I said last week, I can't believe we don't have a cover charge. Maybe it's something we ought to look into. We're to observe this supper as a church family. He gave it to us. We call that an ordinance given to the local church. There's two of them. Baptism, we'll see that, uh, Lord willing, next week as well, and the Lord's Supper. And uh, we do that at our church the first Sunday of every month. In fact, because of this message and some scheduling things, we're actually going to do uh, the Lord's Supper tonight. So I invite you to come back and participate in what we've been talking about this morning. Uh, this evening at 6 p.m. But we take the Lord's Supper once a month, and we do so because He told us, 1 Corinthians 11, to do this on a regular basis in remembrance of Him. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of repentance. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels, not even common politics or common careers, or common hobbies. What binds us together is a common love by Christ and for Christ. And so uh, we have been given that to the local church. You need to do this in community. Lastly, there's an expect <clears throat> ex expectancy. Whew. Words are hard, amen? Uh, there's an expectancy. The Lord's Supper is about looking to the future. Jesus sat here at this supper and He says, Fellas, this is it. Think about that. This is the last time I'm eating and drinking anything here on this earth. Now, one day, that's going to be true for you and me as well. I don't want to be morbid, but have you ever thought about your last meal? We think of men that are going to be executed. You've probably read about that too. Men who are going to be uh, executed by the state, they get an option to pick their last meal. I looked at a few this week. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, asked for two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream as his final meal. Uh, James Edward Smith asked for a pile of dirt. Not sure what that was all about. Victor Fegior ordered a single olive that had not been pitted. And after he died in the electric chair, they found the olive pit in his pocket. 
By far the strangest meal request that I've ever seen was Lawrence Russell Brewer, and this is what he asked for. Two chicken fried steaks and sliced onions and gravy. A triple meat bacon cheeseburger, everything on the side. One cheese omelet with all the fixings. A big bowl of fried okra and ketchup. Amen. That sounds good. One pound of barbecued meat and a loaf of white bread. Three fajitas with all the toppings. A Pizza Hut meat lover's pizza and a pint of bluebell vanilla ice cream and three root beers. Surprisingly, the state honored his request. They gathered all this stuff together. They laid it in front of him, and when all the food arrived, Brewer said, never mind, I'm not hungry. That's like the life. <laughs> they probably enjoyed taking him out. You've probably, there have probably been other odd requests, but here's what I want you to consider. You probably will not get to choose your last meal. Because probably when you eat your last meal, you will not realize it's your last. I'm using this illustration with permission. On the morning of December 11th, 2018, it was cloudy, 28 degree day. Our dear friend Della Pigor sat at breakfast with her husband. It was a few hours after that. She wasn't feeling well and she went to the emergency room and he called, Wes called me and told me they're going to the emergency room and, and so I said, keep me informed. And when she went to the emergency room, no big deal, but they got to do something in Sioux Falls, so go to Sioux Falls. And uh, so then he called me, they're on the way down. I said, well, you let me know when you get settled in, I'll come down and visit. He says, no, no, don't even bother, Pastor, because we're going to be on the way home before you ever get down here. Neither of them had any clue that that morning she had eaten her last meal. No idea that her next meal would be in heaven. Now, I'm simply asking you this, friend. Are you ready to meet God if today's lunch is your last meal? You say, oh, yes, preacher, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Well, let me ask you this. Are you living the way that God wants you to live? John tells us in 1 John 2, 28, and now little children abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his appearing. I wonder if we were unexpectedly taken, would there be shame in the, when we stand before God? If so, take a page out of the life of Peter. He put all his focus on what he would do, and he failed. Later, after the resurrection, he had to face Jesus. John 21, we talked about that a little bit last week. Jesus asked him three times, well, he didn't ask him, what are you going to do, Peter, to make up for what you did? He didn't do that, praise God. I'm glad he doesn't do that to any of us ever. But he simply asked, do you love me? Oh, poor Peter, brokenhearted over his failure. He says, Lord, you know me. You've proven you know me better than I know myself. You know I love you. He asked three times, do you love me? And then he said, feed my sheep. You see, we do not serve God we do not use our talents to gain his love. Jesus showed Peter out of our love for him is how we serve him. See, we, we get it so backwards in our life, especially religions. We serve and do and do and do trying to earn or gain something. Reputation, self-gratification, God's behavior, even salvation. You'll never do it. You'll never do it. No one will ever do it. And not like Peter, they'll fail. Jesus said, do you love me? That's the right order. 
We have to have a relationship with Him. And out of that is how we serve. You'll, you get that part right in your life, and the other things will fall into place. Do you have the right relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? I thank God for this supper. It reminds us it is not our performance. <laughs> it's not our performance that gains us our salvation. Thank God, because it wouldn't happen. And it's not our performance that gains us our sanctification. It's all through His grace. It's all through Him. God is not interested so much in what you do for Him and what He can do through you, through a proper and right relationship with Him. I'd like to have every head bowed, every eye closed. And I want to ask two questions today. I want you to listen intently. No one's looking around. No one's going to point you out or embarrass you. I'm not going to, not going to do anything to... to uh, point you out. I just want to pray for you. If you hinder, say, preacher, as you're talking, I don't know if I have that relationship. I don't know that if today were my last meal, I don't know for sure where I'd be. I hope I'd be in heaven, but I don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about a hope-so salvation. It talks about a no-so salvation. Say, preacher, I'm not sure. Would you pray for me? Would you slip up your hand? Let me pray for you. I'm not sure. I'm just not quite sure. Thank you so much. What about you, dear Christian? Are you ready to face God? Would there be shame if today's lunch was your last meal? We learn much from the Last Supper. Let's ask God to work as this, as this uh, altar call starts. Would you stand along with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed as she begins to play. If God spoke.